0: Welcome to the Inclusive Leader podcast, the practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. I'm delighted to share this conversation with Mark Fowler, CEO of Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum is a nonprofit organization that combats religious prejudice, hate, hate and builds respect for religious differences. It is focused on transforming individuals and organizations, particularly in the healthcare, education, and overall corporate environments. And it also conducts multiple peace building efforts around the world. So, you know, this topic could not be more timely or important, as oftentimes our identities, our social identities, behaviors, and differences have a religious underpinning. And the topic of religion and religious diversity is only now beginning to be addressed by many organizations around the world. So here is my conversation with Mark Fowler. So the very unceremonially, I want to ask you what you do, how to start us off, but really, in 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 our case, it's really you personally, but also you and I mean the organization that you represent, Tannenbaum as well. And for me, it's one and the same. <laughs> when I think of one, I think of you, and and, so, and vice versa. <laughs> well,
1: yes, and and I appreciate the question, Your, because there are places where there are a lot of similarities, and there are places where it's different. So, uh, what I do is I'm the CEO at the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding, Tannenbaum for short. And I have been in the role of CEO for two years and a couple of months. But I've worked with Tannenbaum and at Tannenbaum for over 15 years. And You know, I've had a number of roles in our programmatic work and then eventually was named to succeed my immediate boss, who was the CEO at Tannenbaum and worked at Tannenbaum for 18 years. So a lot of our years kind of crossed over and we spent a lot of time like working and building at Tannenbaum together. And as CEO, what's interesting is, is that I am accountable for all of Tannenbaum's functioning and what I actually do more times than not, I'm looking for ways to fulfill the mission and the vision that we have, which is to combat religious prejudice, promote justice, build respect for religious difference. And, you know, raising money to make sure that we are financially sound, and also looking for new opportunities for either partnerships or ways in which we might increase or expand our impact. That's what I actually do. <laughs> yes. I am periodically still able to conduct presentations on our work, and I'm, ex- I- I'm glad about that. And certainly not doing nearly as much as I used to do when I was working squarely in the program area. Uh, because all of the programs, thank goodness, are thriving. And we have very smart people who are working in them. So I don't need to be everywhere, <laughs> which is a good problem to have. It's a great have. feeling, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is a great feeling um, to know that I don't, and I have never really held it, that I was the only one who could go someplace or do something. And my staff pretty much know, you know, use me as you see fit. In the, in the seat that I hold, in the position that I hold. In addition to the work that I do at Tannenbaum, I'm also an interfaith and interspiritual minister. I was ordained 10 years ago from the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary, and periodically I preach at different religious and spiritual communities, mostly in New York. I was on uh I was a Dean for second year students at one spirit for six years up until June of this year. and uh, I am on the faculty at the seminary. so I teach a course to first year seminary students on religious diversity and bias and equity in ministry. And in the second year program, I will be teaching a course, uh, co-teaching actually, a course on spiritual leadership and will likely be doing some work around um, sacred partnerships or more commonly wedding. And so that is another part of my work. So it's very interesting because there are moments where there are resources, poems, thoughts about spiritual communities that are very much a part of my experience as a a minister and even as a student, that I've actually been able to share at Tannenbaum to some of our members uh, and to some of our various constituents that we have. And then likewise, there are models at Tannenbaum around social identity, social and salient identities, the diversity of belief, culture, and practice, our peace-building work, and the lives and the work of our peacemakers, that I've been able to share in my work in ministry outside of Tannenbaum. So it's a very, it's very interesting to see kind of where and how
0: that flow happens. Because it's not always in the places I would think. Sure, that's true. You know, perfect synergy. Because this is we we are likely to have a global audience for this uh podcast. Just curious, interfaith ministry may not be familiar to to many listeners. If you couldn't wouldn't mind you know just explaining that a little bit. And then the other thing is the the mission of Tannenbaum in itself, because I think it's an extraordinarily timely mission, especially when I look around the world and what's happening in so many societies and communities worldwide. Sure, sure. So um, my ordination
1: is actually as an interfaith and interspiritual minister. And what that means is that we generally are trained to look at the mystical aspects of religious and spiritual belief and practice that have resonance across a variety of traditions. So not just looking at rituals that are the same, but looking at the ways in which people access, understand, practice the divine, the sacred, God, Allah, in whatever ways in which divinity manifests itself across beliefs and traditions and peoples. And so really kind of grounding ourselves in that there is a way in which people interact with that idea of not just that's what's greater than them, because that also has its own particular religious connotation. But that's why we kind of often will relate to what people relate to as sacred. And then how do we make ourselves available to people in basically spiritual stewardship and and practice? So what you will find an interfaith or interspiritual minister usually very well trained in is if you have two people who come from different religious traditions and they're getting married. And how do you actually create ritual and ceremony that acknowledges both paths as well as how they uniquely see themselves as a, a couple or more, if you know depending on the circumstance that you're in, how do they want to express their love and commitment in the world, likewise with funerals and death rites, even with children that Part of the curriculum is that we actually have to write ceremonies in all of these kind of life cycle moments. So we actually have to write a baby blessing as part of our training, and and think about you know a family or even someone who is either welcoming a child, a pet, maybe they may be bringing someone into their family as a quote unquote adopted member, and what's the ritual around that? That add the sacred element or the sacred di-
0: dimension to that experience. So because this is the Inclusive Leader podcast, right, I'm just, it, it's so fascinating because in a sense, you're saying the core of interfaith and inter interspiritual ministry is actually inclusive, right, inclusive of all kinds of traditions. And through that, you also have to, you know, this is actually more of a question, but Create rituals, right, that give expression to that inclusive sense of religious diversity or or or, or different, different traditions actually that exist.
1: No, absolutely. That also this also includes the experiences of secular people mm-hmm. and people who do not identify with any kind of religious or spiritual tradition at all. Who very well maybe still have profound or present wounding or the experience of being wounded. By being a member of a particular tradition. And I like the way that you said it because what it kind of bears in mind for me is that we are rather than making people subscribe to a particular ritual, we are in co-creation with the people that we work with around which ritual, ritual that helps
0: them access the sacred as they understand it. It's so, I mean, this is, this would probably take us off track right now <laughs> in this podcast, but I, I, I'm a firm believer that leaders need to embrace rituals and symbolism a lot more than they actually do in order to transition their organizations through experiences of change, right? Or mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, there's so many, many, Aspects to the human experience that we need, that, that we, where rituals help us transition, right? And that in itself, whether it is in a religious or spiritual context or not, would be a fascinating uh, learning, actually, how leaders can, how we can create meaningful rituals to transition or to accompany our shared experience. Well, I will definitely say that.
1: One of the presenters at One Spirit, uh, who has been presenting for many years, I think even since the beginning of the, the, since the creation of the organization, we actually have someone who comes in and presents on ritual. And one of the things that she helps, and to your point, is that people engage in ritual all the time, but they may not necessarily think of it as sacred. And so I would add to your thought about leaders engaging in ritual. It may be that they may want to be a little bit more public about the ritual that they engage in, because I've got dollars to donuts that they are, there are rituals that they engage in, but it may not have been a safe environment for them to share that this new direction of the company is coming from this process that I engaged in. Yes, correct. And maybe, you know, creating an environment where leaders feel their own sense of safety, that they can share this without thinking that someone's going to report them to the shareholders (laughs) and say, our CEO has just lost his mind. And (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think that there's that. And then to the original question... In terms of Tannenbaum's mission, so you know, our we're celebrating our 30th this year. And I think the mission has evolved, certainly in the time that I've been here. So when we talk about combating religious prejudice, promoting justice, and in particular building respect for religious difference, we see that not as uh it is, we see that as both process as well as results we hope to impact or support other people in the work that they're already doing. So we have four program areas. We work in education where we provide training and resources for teachers and school systems to create inclusive learning environments, but also to support the development of social and emotional learning skills for students to respect religious diversity, to understand that it exists and to actually have behavioral practices that they have been trained in when they approach religious or spiritual or even secular ideals or people that are different from themselves. We do that same work in healthcare. We provide training and resources to both medical practitioners as well as non-clinical staff on the way that patients and families make decisions for their care, That are based in their religious and spiritual beliefs as well sometimes as their secular beliefs and not wanting necessarily religion to be a part of their treatment plan but giving all of those involved in the healthcare experience the tools to engage with people when these issues come up and then you know where you and i met is our work in the workplace and it's 25 years now of the 30 years that we've been providing consultancy and guidance and training and resources with the idea, with the ultimate goal, if you will, that employees of all faiths and none would experience themselves as being respected in the workplace. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're children and they get whatever they want, but that all of the processes that people engage in even if they ask for something and they don't get it, they walk away from the experience, at least knowing that they have been heard, they have been respected, and they have a good reason for why they can't have what they've asked for.
0: And that's perhaps one of the most difficult of all missions, right? To feel that people are respected all around, right? I mean yes. I mean it's it, it seems sometimes so trite when we say this, but it is actually one of the most difficult experiences to consciously create and it takes that conscious creation it it does
1: take conscious creation and it takes also understanding that you know one of the activities that we sometimes engage people in is we put them into small groups and ask them to define what does respect look like sound like and feel like and that they have to as part of the exercise come to agreement on what it is that they are proposing and as you can imagine, there are other groups, whether it's in-person or virtual, who are working on the same thing. And undoubtedly, people are going to come up with different responses. And we know that the way in which the behaviors of respect are seen very differently unto a person. And so that conscious creation that you're talking about means that you have to create processes that allow for the ongoing evolving of
0: how people understand respectful behavior. And I think, I mean, <laughs> this is so core to the human experience, as is, by the way, religion and spirituality, right? And we we oftentimes, even though a lot of what happens in societies and sometimes the worst things that happen in societies, I mean, I'm thinking of, obviously, in, in my cultural context, the Holocaust and and so forth, where, where religion played such an important role not as religion but as a label right of groups mm-hmm. and to justify tremendous atrocities in in this world i mean i'm at least registering a lot more conflict wrapped around religious identity and i don't know if you see that yourselves in in different societies around the world that which makes this entire mission that you represent and you're a part of you preside and in a sense so much more important today and it pains me sometimes to see that it's not, I mean, especially in the workplace discussions, or actually all of them, schools, healthcare, the workplace, that it it oftentimes takes a back seat. I mean, that's my impression, at least.
1: Well, I think that um, the, the one program that I didn't mention, which I must, is our peace-building work as well. And so in the peace-building work, we identify and Study the work, write case studies, but really try to raise the profile of not just the people who are receiving our award, but religious actors who are working in conflict zones around the world. And In some instances, that active conflict, in some cases, the people who are named as peacemakers, the environment in which they were working is post-conflict now, but they are being recognized for the work that they did during the active conflict and to your point I mean I go back and forth with this a lot I don't think we can underestimate the role that social media and media broadly define plays on the recognition of religious diversity as an element of conflict as we see it today what i do think that we sometimes, or that sometimes gets underestimated in society and even in our evaluation, is that we see snippets or moments now very quickly without context, without historical context, without social or cultural context. And things get reduced into sound bites where people don't always know what the full history of that experience is. And so, I think that certainly from my perspective leading Tannenbaum, it has been somewhat easier to explain what we do as an organization. I would say over the last six to eight years since I've been at Tannenbaum, where when I first started, people kind of struggled with this idea of, well, combating religious prejudice and what does that mean? And you're a secular organization, but you're working in the world of religion. Like people seem to be far more confused. Whereas now when I tell people what our mission is, they're like, well, thank goodness you exist and you (laughs) must be incredibly busy. And so there is at least a recognition of the, at the very least, there is a recognition that there is work to do around building respect for religious difference that I do think resonates with people today, because as much as religion is often talked about as the cause of problems, there's much more work to do around people understanding the intricate nature of of distinguishing sometimes belief from practice and theology from uh, the actual lived experience of people, and the ways in which people, to your point, the ways in which their religious identity is targeted
0: distinct from a belief that someone has. Absolutely. And it's it's also people default on religious belief systems or religions as cause, but maybe it's a manifestation. You know, the, the, the causation isn't always very clear. Right. That, that is very true very often in
1: moments where or in conflicts that are being discussed, while religion has been purported to be cause, the cause is often actually around some other resource that people don't have equitable access to. And then religious identity is used as a way to try and get that resource. And the other thing that very, that, doesn't happen in the same way or it's not reported in the same way is when religion, religious belief, practice its solution. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the work of our peace builders is probably one of the greatest examples that I see of that, where that these religious actors, not just our peace actors, but those around the world who are working day to day in the midst of an active conflict where their belief or the beliefs of the people are actually being activated to either resolve conflict or to sustain peace. Yes. and I you know, we do an international search process and a nominations process. and I would not faint from surprise that we will likely have nominees from the Ukraine from that conflict. and I would not think from surprise if there is somebody who is nominated, from Russia, who is actively using their faith as a way to bring an end to
0: conflict. But there's but we're not going to hear that story right now. No, that's that's true. But I love this this way of really investigating. Are we see are we attributing cause to religion? Are we treating it as a manifestation or are we using it as a gateway to a solution? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really it's interesting lenses on on this phenomenon. I don't know. It, it may be the right time to ask my second prompt, but we—I we, feel sometimes we we already kind of straddle the answer. <laughs> or So, but it's very simple. Why? Why do you do this work? And and I mean this both in why. What 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 is the maybe the history of Tannenbaum in a, in a sense? And why do you do this work? I mean, <laughs> you know. so Tannenbaum
1: was uh, created, and uh, our name, our name, uh Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum was someone who was known as a builder, uh, a connector. He engaged in a great deal of interfaith efforts around causes where people were experiencing inequity, sometimes in the fear of their life. He worked with a number of and across religious traditions to actually bring awareness and shed light and hopefully, to take action on behalf of vulnerable populations who could not speak for themselves or who were in danger. And certainly the Jewish community was one of those communities, but he saw a larger context for why vulnerable communities and vulnerable religious communities would find themselves in the place of need and often no one coming to their aid. And so... It was purposeful to create Tannenbaum as a secular and non-sectarian organization to illuminate the work that he did, that this was not just about one religious community's concerns, but that religious diversity, broadly defined, was an access point. It was a place where change could happen. And so... You know, the organization has grown and shifted over the 30 years and very clearly, and especially, you know, want to acknowledge all of the members of the board of directors who have served Tannenbaum over the years, but to be very thoughtful about being an organization that provided strategies and solutions and ways to help people move forward in these very complicated topics. And also to not put ourselves in the position of having the answer as much as giving people context to process that they could engage in to find their own answer. And then for me personally, when I first started working at Tannenbaum, which I'd only expected to be at for three or four years, by <laughs> the way, and that was 15 years ago. That's how it's usually. Um,
0: <laughs> <says>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how it often happens. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of my work at that point had been, I'd been a high school teacher for a number of years. I'd been an entrepreneur actually running a catering and baked goods business. And i had also been a trainer with the Anti-Defamation League in their a World of Difference Institute. So when I saw the advertisement for an educator and trainer in Tannenbaum's education work, I myself have been a, a religious person Um, I, you know, was baptized as a Presbyterian and went to church and all of that kind of stuff. And it had a number of different religious and spiritual experiences. I wouldn't have called myself a member of an interfaith community at that point, but certainly the idea of God being a part of my life, et cetera, guiding my life was definitely present. But I'd never really sought out a job where the exploration of religion was actually a part of the job. And so it was kind of interesting to me because it was this intersection that I'd never imagined of my work as a teacher and my work as a trainer and my own kind of like experience of being a religious or spiritual person. There was something very interesting about it. As I continued, like once I got the job and then continued working through all of Tannenbaum's program areas, there were a couple of things that happened that kind of were... Life changing in a way, or at least lens changing, maybe I should say. So I am an African American person. I identify as gay. I'm 58 years old. So there's certain life experiences that kind of come with all of that, and thing you know, having lived through you know the beginnings of the AIDS crisis and all of that kind of stuff. So there were any number of places where I could see where I was not experiencing privilege, where I was actually at the behest of other people's privilege. But working at Tannenbaum was when I first came into the idea of privilege, at least in the United States, and it happens differently in different parts of the world, by having been an either an active or current member of the Christian community and understanding for the first time ever that there was privilege that came to me that was unearned privilege, which I think is important to distinguish when We have conversations about privilege, unearned privilege that was just bestowed to me because I was a member of of a Christian community or in some way connected to it or having experienced it. And this was at a time where conversations around privilege were not happening in DEI spaces. Yes. (laughs) We were even tentative to introduce the idea first in our education world which is where it first showed up in our world. Of course. But we had this really great model kind of building from the work that Peggy McIntosh had done around white privilege and unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. There was another article that was written at another time around Christian privilege. And so now I am very, 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 very mindful that anytime the conversation around religious diversity or equity shows up, that I am walking into that conversation with a certain amount of privilege, and if nothing else, that Christianity is being, anything is being discussed in relationship to a quote-unquote established legitimacy of Christianity, and everybody else having to make their case. And so that changed a lot for me, because then between that and then just knowing some of our peacemakers, having met them in person, read their case studies, and some other personal things that happened where people were kind of turning to me in weird moments. <laughs> I wish you could marry us. I wish you could do my father's funeral. It just, and then kind of seeing all of these things kind of colliding made a journey around interfaith and interspirituality kind of interesting. And then also noticing, and this is in my humble opinion the conversations around interfaith often happen with only a couple of actors at the table. And so there, in my mind, there is this ongoing journey for those of us who get invited to that table to bring others who we don't see or don't expect will be at that table. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's one of the things that has kind of kept me at Tannenbaum to a certain degree, is that there, have, there has been... This personal growth that's happened over the years that I did not think it wasn't something that I expected to happen when I said, yes, I'll be the
0: educator and trainer for the education program. As it goes in life so frequently, (laughs) we discover all these things. And sometimes, at least in my case, the things I run away from the most, I I find myself running towards. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's, There's no way out. There's no way out. <laughs> yeah, but what an interesting. I mean, what a, what are also interesting conclusions? Because you you know all all these other. I mean, you had in a sense you had an entire spectrum of choices around what you want to focus on in terms of that social experience, and 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 to pick this area. Or for this area to pick you, perhaps, you know, sometimes it's the, the the opposite experience. And to me, it's very central to the human experience, which is, of course, my kind of my anthropological lens. Because, I mean, coming back to ritual even, right, and even the stages in life are marked by ritual or by trans, transition moments. And all of these are kind of navigated you know, or or managed, if you will, by some institutionalized sense of religious or spiritual meaning, even if it's entirely uh, secular. And I I think it's, we we can't look at the human experience in the workplace or in schools or healthcare or in conflict situations without that dimension of spirituality or religion. Yeah, no,
1: I I absolutely agree. And I think that you know, particularly thinking about, you know, some of the commonplace language that we hear today is around, you know, division and polarization. And the thing that I get concerned about is that in that characterization is this idea that somehow those things did not exist before we started calling them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. And, and and it actually is a big area of frustration for me because it denotes that somebody thought that everything was fine until fill in the date and it's kind of like depending on who you ask
0: things haven't been good for hundreds of years in fact some religions or religious traditions have their origin in order in in kind of an interface, you know, purpose almost or mission, right? To to reconcile and and yeah, there, there definitely are. And and I don't want to leave your
1: listeners, and I don't want to be a proponent of. It's, you know, it's just far more complicated. But I do think that in the same way that even before George Floyd's murder, a couple of years before that, when we started seeing the murders that were happening in the streets becoming conversation of Black and African and African-American people in their workplaces, talking in some instances for the first time about what their daily life experience was, that the same is true for religious diversity, that there are people who have experiences that we don't even know about, that they manage on a daily basis that have been passed down to them, not just because everyone was in a comfort zone, but because kind of like, this happened to us and could happen to us and your children again. And here are the warning signs. And that is, you know, definitely an experience of Jewish people worldwide, but it is the experience of groups of people, religious and secular people, who have experienced. Horror in the name of their identity that we may not be familiar with or know a lot about, or remember the day or two that our 11th grade teacher talked about it in high school. Like the religious literacy, if you will, and I use that term quite broadly, it's not been something that has been prioritized. And so as a result, we find ourselves in many instances not unwilling, but far more unprepared than we would
0: want to be to actually be able to address these issues. So what a perfect, I mean, I'm looking at our time a little bit, but what a perfect segue to maybe that preparation. Yes, we could. For yes, like, we could. <laughs> but, you know, I oftentimes in, in these in these interviews and in these conversations, I ask a very simple question. What are some, maybe one or two actionable insights from, that anybody who's listening or so could Could learn from or put into practice, and that would make a difference based on your experience and and background and your focus on this.
1: Yeah, so I would say that if using a definition of privilege as the power with which you can make something come into reality, using that as a base definition, I would ask people to consider where and to what degree do you have any privilege in the space of religious diversity to consider that and then to make a short list if necessary but consider what are the actions that you can take where your privilege where the the power that just your voice and your speaking about something that or a topic that provides equity or relief for a group of people who don't practice the way that you do what can you do? That would be one thing. I think the second thing would be, you know, one of our, in our education work, one of our six behavioral learning outcomes is tied to this idea of uh, for young people to understand that there is religious diversity. And so I would encourage people to really explore, you could do it even in your own neighborhood, you'd be surprised. Like if you slowed your car down, going to the places where you normally go, how many places do you pass that have a religious or spiritual tradition that's other than your own that you know nothing about? And you may not want, you may not be ready to walk into each one, but make a note and do a little research on what's immediately around you. What who are the people immediately around you? And maybe you could take it a step further to find out what do they need? What do they need? I would say, you know, and for me, in times where I have been either saddened by something or depressed by something, whether it was personal, professional, something that was happening in the world, one of the fastest ways to get out of that is to do something for somebody else. <laughs> True. <laughs> yes. When when I was teaching and I would have all of these kind of quote unquote weights of the world on my mind, for the hours that it was I was in front of my students, I didn't have time to entertain my own kind of neuroses about things. I had to deliver a lesson. I had to get something right. done. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so I do think that there's something to be said for. Whatever, Wherever you're feeling that pull, wherever you're feeling that sadness, is a place to actually investigate what could you do to alleviate that sadness, not just for yourself, but for others. And there is a quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but it basically says that purpose is the meeting of your great sadness and the world's greatest need. What a great course. And so I would invite people to, when thinking about a life of purpose, to dig into those places where you are experiencing sadness because there is a need in the world that can be addressed by you exploring that sadness for yourself. And I think that that's one of the things that Tannenbaum helps to facilitate is that people support our work, they understand our work, they welcome our work because there is something that doesn't feel equitable there's something that doesn't feel right that they know they can do something about but they're not exactly sure what they can
0: do and ultimately it's a spiritual practice how beautiful right i mean it it, it, it answers its own question in a sense you know
1: yes and and even for the person who is not religious or secular in some way just you know as as kennedy said that's not what your country can do for you Ask what you can do for your country. And we can take that to the most simplest circumstances, like ask not what your family can do for you, ask what you can do, all of that. So I think that, you know, it's a a really kind of universal experience of what it means to be in humanity.
0: Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com.